0: The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at StoneOakBible.com. I hope you've had a great morning. Listen, this one's gonna be a fun one. Um, this might be, the text that we're looking at this morning might be one of the most uncommon texts that you'll ever hear preached. In fact, I, do, I can't remember if I've ever heard this preached. So there's a chance you might not have either. And so I'll say it again, this one's gonna be fun. Um, and uh, before we even get to it, Listen, it brings us to something really important, something I want to bring out as we come to a text like the one we're about to look at. Um, even before we talk about the what, I want to take just a quick moment and talk about the why. Why are we even looking at a text like the one we're about to look, like, look at this morning? Um, this is important, and I think it touches on one of the core values of our church, and um, I'll say it like this. We believe this is our authority. We believe this is our foundation, our solid ground. And, and when I say this, we mean all of this. All of it. I mean, all the parts and all of the verses and, and uh, all of it, all the books. And, and now, yes, there are some parts of this that are easier than others. Um, There are some parts of this that are so easy to apply, to understand, but all of this is our foundation, all of it. And if we as the church don't know what to do with sections of this, and if we as pastors, teachers, churches decide to skip or avoid sections of this, guess what we're training our people to do. Well, we're training the church. We're, we're, we're teaching that we should avoid sections of this because it's hard. And we don't want to do that. Uh, there's, a, there's a scripture in um, that Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, 3, um, in verse 14, it says, But as for you, Timothy, Paul's talking to Timothy here, he says, continue in what you have learned. And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. The sacred writings are this. Um, more specifically for Timothy at this time, it was the Old Testament. And uh, he says, you've been um, familiar with this. And, and the New Testament was being written in Timothy's lifetime. But he, what we're seeing here is you've been acquainted with the scriptures, With the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then listen to this. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. What's the first word? I'm going to put it in orange and circle it. All. All. Not some. Not most of. Not a vast majority of. All, all scripture is breathed out by God. That is an incredibly unique word in our Bible that God breathes. It's one word in Greek that God breathed, breathed out. All of it breathed out. And then Paul says, all scripture is breathed out. God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, all of this is for us. All of this informs what we believe, our doctrine, and all of this informs what we do, how we live our life. All of this, as Paul says, is beneficial to us all, all. So here at Stone Oak, I say all this to say, we believe that all means all, and we've decided to preach the way we preach because of that belief. Um, this is why we preach the way we preach here. We could, I think, faithfully teach topics, we could um, come to this text or pull text where we want to teach certain things and uh, organize our teaching by themes. And there's I'm not condemning any church that does that. But I do think it's important that we know why we do what we do here. In case it's weird for you, uh, in case you're not used to this, I, I think it's important that we know why we have chosen to walk through books of the Bible like this. The reason why is because we want to sit under all of this, even the sections that are hard. Even the sections that are hard to apply. And why is that? I want to give you just two reasons. One, I'm going to be honest with you. If I were given this whole thing, and I was given the opportunity to pick anything and teach it, there is no way I would have chosen the text that we're going to, I'm about to preach. No way. And guess what? That would be to our detriment. As I sat with this this week, um, I am so grateful I slowed down in a text like this, was able to sit with it. Um, Preaching this way gives us the joy of taking Scripture as Scripture comes. I love that. Verse by verse and chapter by chapter, knowing, believing, all of this is God-breathed out. That's number one. Number two, um, I mentioned this, but if I as a pastor avoid tough things there's a reality here that that our churches are training people discipling our people to do the same and 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 we i want us to be students of all of this to sit in and on and under this all of this and again i know certain texts are going to be easier in fact right now i'm in a reading plan have you ever been in a reading plan Um, And right now, my reading plan has me smack dab in the middle of Job. If you've been through Job, I heard a, ooh, you know what I'm talking about. So, the middle of Job is Job and his friends moaning and groaning together on and on, on and on, and complaining to each other in poetry. It's not really my jam. Like, at first, if I'm going to pick up something, I would never select that portion of the Bible to sit with. But yet, because it's on my reading plan, here I was all week sitting in it. And this week, I was so grateful that I was. Sitting with a text that I maybe would have skipped over, but God's been working on me through it, because all of this matters. From the easy stuff like Genesis, Psalms and John, Philippians, so good. Just pick that up anytime, right? To the hard stuff, um, like numbers. Um, how many reading plans have been really good intentioned and have stopped in Leviticus? Right? Um, or the middle of Job, or 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 16. And uh, but here's the thing, all of this matters, and so we preach this, and I mean this with great expectation this morning. Expectation that God will do what he said he will do. Isaiah 55:11. we believe this. It says, so, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. Whew, God, breathe. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose, our purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We believe this. And so here's the thing. Church, with great joy, with great expectation, we turn to this potentially unfamiliar text. Um, 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16. This is a larger chunk, and I'll get to why that is here in a bit. Um, but I want to read it out to us. And I want to encourage you as I read it, just follow along with me. It says this. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for their passions draw them away from Christ. They desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not So, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. You ready? I want to start with prayer. And then let's walk through this together. God, we come to your word, and uh, first and foremost, we thank you that you have given us your word. We know it is, as your word says, God-breathed, and we know that it will not return void. So in this moment, we pray that you would go before us in your word, and that you would shape us, and that you would help us to see. We give you glory for it, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, As you can tell, that was a long, longer-than-normal section of text. There's a reason for this. There's a reason we chose not to break this one up. Um, And the reason for that is because it really speaks to one thing. And uh, it's really not possible to break this up all that well. Because you'll repeat or miss something. It's just so intertwined. So we're here with a bigger section. I'm going to do my best to faithfully present us with the big theme of, of this text. Um, as we look at this, the idea that Paul's putting before us. And um, I want to give it away all up front. So we look at this text. Paul is writing to Timothy that he and the church, um, listen, would care for and love the widows in their community with wisdom and discernment. That's the big bucket theme. You would care for and love the widows in your community with wisdom and discernment. That theme connects all of this together. Um, With uh, with that main point, there are three things that are going to emerge in this text. And So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at these three things that weave themselves in and out of the text I just read. And we're going to examine them as we zoom in on them. But first, Paul starts off by saying this. Two words. Honor widows. Main point. All right? That's it. That's the command of the whole thing. We could just close up and go home. Honor widows. Um, but here's the reason we can't just close up and go home. Because right after he says that, he gives, wastes no time at all giving us a qualification. And he says, he's going to qualify things, define things. And what he's really going to do is show us how we are able to honor widows well. What this actually looks like to love and to care for them. And he does this by giving us three things. These are the three things that we're going to look at as we look at this text. How do we care for and love those in need? Number one, we are all called to discernment. Discernment. Discernment is the ability to judge well. What is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, what is false, what is true. Discernment. We are all called to discernment. We're going to see this all throughout our text. I'm going to highlight it. Um, Here we go. He says, verse three, honor widows who are truly widows. He qualifies it and he does it again. Verse 5. She who is truly a widow. You don't have to say it with that weird inflection, but I'm just doing that to get a point here. Same word, truly. This is a qualification word that calls us to have some discernment. Then, my goodness, he gives us a bunch of qualifications, doesn't he? We have verse 9. Um, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Qualification. Husband one, or uh, uh, been a wife of one husband. Qualification. Having a good reputation. Qualification. Brought up children. Hospitality. Washes the feet of the saints. Cared for the afflicted. Devoted herself to every good work. Qualification. Qualification. Just gives this list, right? And then in verse 11 says it again. Refused to enroll younger widows. Now there's an age qualification. We see qualifications. What on earth do we do with all of these qualifications that we see in this text? And honestly, um, this can be hard. And What is this? What is Paul getting at? As I was thinking about these and asking that question, something just hit my mind, and I actually printed it, and it's this. Okay, this means nothing to any of you because I'm up here and you can't read this. Um, what this is, is our church's benevolence policy. If you want a good read on one Monday morning, uh, do you know what a benevolence policy is? Benevolence policy, what it is, to tell you the truth, it's a lot like what you read in 1 Timothy uh, 5, 3 through 16, a lot like it. Um, it's, it's we as a church want to care for those who are hurting. We want to care for those who are in need to come around people that are struggling. Yet, how do we do it? Do we just, every need that's presented, just be like, you get money. You get money. Take it. Everyone. Like, is that our response? It sounds like it would be awesome, but that's not our response. Why? Because we want to be faithful stewards of what God has given us as his people as the church um, and that would not be wise okay it's not, it's not wise so what do we do then we have attention we have on this hand we want to love and care for those who are in need and on this hand we want to be discerning faithful stewards how do we uh, what, what, what do we do what do we do there Well, we do something very similar to what we see in 1 Timothy 5. We do something like this. What this is, is um, a benevolence policy. Our qualifications that we have here, they're they're different than the ones we see here. It's very true. Um, Our needs that we face are different than what we see here. That's very true. But the heart's the same. It's a call to discernment. It's a call to be wise. And so we think and pray for wisdom and clarity on how we can engage with those who are hurting. That's what this is. We write it all out like this. Why do we do that? I don't enjoy this policy stuff. Craig does. I don't. I don't at all. If you know Craig, you know he does. Um, But here's the thing. We do this so that when needs arise, we are Ready. We're ready. We're we're ready. We're able to step in. Um, as much as I would love to just shower everyone with dollars, um, we can't. It wouldn't be wise. And so we want to make sure we're good stewards. And so what we see here in this text that I just read is a lot like the ancient Ephesian early churches. Benevolence policy for a particular issue they're facing in their community. It's a lot like this. It's so that they could love for and care for the widows who are in need in their community and at the same time be wise and discerning stewards. That's what we see here. Um, what we see in this early church is that they were navigating some particularly difficult waters with widows who are in need, widows who in this culture and in this context were among the most vulnerable in the entire community. So how could the church care for them and to love them with wisdom and discernment? So so here we have this benevolence policy with the same heart as this. Um, Guess what? We've also been blessed with really godly deacons who are here who oversee all of this. And uh, it's a lot like Acts 6. If you remember, there were needs that were coming up. And, and so the church um, selected and affirmed godly deacons who would make sure those needs weren't missed. Well, it's the same thing that we see in our church. As a church, we've been given valuable resources and time and people and gifts and abilities to be stewarded well and to faithfully steward. We have elders and deacons and we have stuff like this and policies and direction. Why? because we want to be ready. We want to be ready to step in, discerning, wise, and generous. We want to be ready. So this is a good time for me to ask a question. I want to turn this now to you. Are you ready? I'm not saying that you need a formal benevolence policy for yourself and for your family, although that might be a lot of fun to try to do. It might be. It might be good. It might be awesome. But what I am asking is how can you manage this faithfully that you would love and care for those who are in need, which God has called you to do, and that you would be a wise, discerning steward, which God has called you to do and to be? How do you do this when someone presents you with a need? If someone were to present you with a need, ask for something, what would your response be? Would it be whatever mood you're in? How would you respond? Depending on who you ask, you'll hear things like, well, as a Christian, aren't you supposed to say yes to everyone? I mean, saying no is not very Christian-like. Then you'll hear others who say, well, what about when helping someone hurts them? We shouldn't say yes to that. How do we balance this? What do we do? Listen, this is not easy. It involves prayer. It involves wisdom, and it involves that discernment. We are all called to discernment what we see modeled here in our text just very simple is it is not anti-christian to have a thought out and prayed out guideline for how you can engage in generosity it's not anti-christian to be discerning in your generosity That's true for us as a church. It's true for you. It's true for your family. We can be responsibly, generous, discerning, wise, caring, and loving. And that's just one of the things that comes out of this text that we see being played out. I want to encourage you today as an individual, as a family, to ask yourself this. How can you care for and love those who are in need with wisdom and discernment as a faithful steward? How can you do it? Okay, now you might hear what I just asked in the direction I just went and say, well, pastor, that is not fair because this is a text written to a pastor and about a church, and here you are turning it on me. Aren't you stretching it a little bit to apply this to me and my family? Um, Thank you for asking. No. (laughs) No, I am not because the second thing that we see in our text is not only are there qualifications, not only is this call to discernment that we see all through this, but church, we also see a beautiful balance in this text between the church and the people. We are called to discernment, yes, but we, church number two, are all called to engage Look at this, just, I'm gonna go quickly again. Verse four, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness in their own household, right? To make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. How's that for clarity? Verse eight, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Like, there it is, that's real clear. That's like, Whew, that's serious. Verse 16 says it again. Um, if any believing woman has relatives who are widow, let her care for them. Let not the church be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. There is a balance here. And I want to put before you that there is a God-designed order that we see in this text. God's plan, first and foremost is that we as the children of God would love and care for each other. That we would provide and look out for each other. It was never God's plan for the institutional church, the big church, this, to take away the responsibility that is yours to care for your brother and sister. We are all called to engage together in this as brothers and sisters. In this early church, Paul was not letting them get off the hook saying, nah, the church will take care of the widows. Ah, the church got it. We're good. No, this call was for the family of God to care for the family members. Um, It's my firm belief, church, that God is all about the smallest units, first. Um, I've used this before. I've used this example before. But there is really no better example of this. And so I'm going to unashamedly use this again, okay? You may have heard this before, but listen, it's the example of politics. Um, By the way, calm down. Not going to get controversial here, I promise. Um, We see this debate in politics all the time. And I want to bring out something here. It's this principle that's called, big word here, the principle of subsidiarity. If you've heard me use this before, you know where I'm going, but but hang with me. Um, In this text, we see this obscure government idea, political idea in this text, and it is beautiful. I want to point, point this out. In government, the principle of subsidiarity is this. It is that nothing should be done by a larger or more complex organization, which can be done well by a smaller and simpler organization. Okay? Um, So what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, what it looks like is that if there's a problem in the community, the best way to fix that and address that problem is the community, not some top-down approach it should be dealt with on the most immediate and local level first, all right? Um, So families matter, neighborhoods matter, local authorities, local governments matter, okay? The the real power is in the smallest units. Okay, that is in government and this is not a government class and I promise you I'm done, all right? Um, But what we see here is that this principle is deeply connected To what we see coming out in this text, and I want to highlight something here. Scripture is saying when needs arise, they are best handled from the smallest level first. Brothers caring for brothers, sisters for sisters, families for families. That we would love one another first before saying, nah, the church has got it. This is exactly what we see in this text. Paul says, brother caring for brother, sister for sister. This is caring for one another on the smallest level. And as verse four of our text says, that is pleasing to God. Verse four says, if a widow has children, let her learn, uh, let them first learn to show godliness in their own household. Return to the parents. And he says, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. What is going on here? Well, here's the thing. We should not try to outsource or offload our responsibility to care for one another, to care for our families, to care for our brothers and our sisters in this context, to care for widows. We should not try to offload that responsibility. Instead, we should shoulder our responsibility to engage for the glory of God because church, that pleases God. That's what we see here. This doesn't mean, by the way, that the church should just close its doors and say, nah, we're done with that. You got it. That's not what this means. It's not what this means. The church should not stop being generous. But here's the thing. It's just, we can't forget that God actually desires to use you. We cannot forget that. Here's the, the point. The church's generosity as a whole is not meant to replace yours. It's meant to come alongside, in addition to, not in replacement of. This is God's plan for his family, his church, the people of God, and it pleases them. Our call is to care for and love with wisdom and discernment as stewards. That is our call. So let me come back to the question. How can you, how can we Care for and love those who are in need with wisdom and discernment as faithful stewards. How can you, how can we do that? What could this look like in your life today? Are you aware of the needs in your own family, in your own church family? Are you trying, hard question here, are you trying to outsource those needs? Or are you willing to step in and say, let me help? can't do everything, but I can do something. Are you willing, this is a hard question, are you willing to be inconvenienced by the needs of one another? Helping people is never convenient. Are you willing to be inconvenienced by the needs of others? Now, I do wanna pause here As a pastor, I wanna always make sure I'm good at doing this. Um, Listen, I wanna encourage you that I see God's word shining through you. Um, In so many situations, I tried to think of them and it was just overwhelming. So many situations I have seen you model this text so incredibly, multiple times. Let me give you an example. Someone will have a surgery it's a big surgery, and it will be like weeks or months, and I didn't even know about it, and then I go, and I hear about it, and I'm like, man, didn't know, do you need anything? It is not uncommon for me to hear something to the tune of, no, my community group really came around me. No, I have meals for the next month. Um, no, we're we're good. I've seen financial needs being generously Handled. I've seen people giving of their time and resources. I've seen so many of you honoring your father and mother, that Old Testament commandment, right? Caring for them as they age and as their needs grow. Church, I will say it again, this pleases God. This pleases God. It is not all that uncommon for, as a church, for us to not spend our entire benevolence budget each year. Why? Because so often, the needs of our congregation are being met by you. And I want to encourage you and thank you. Keep it up, church. Um, Thank you for caring for those I'm even going to go a step. Thank you for being aware and seeing those who are hurting and stepping in and engaging. Again, verse 4, this is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Are we perfect at this? No, but I see us living this out. And so I want to ask, like, how can we as a church... And as individuals and as families, how can we care for and love those who are in need with wisdom and discernment? As faithful stewards, church, you have a part to play in that. Um, And it leads to the third theme that we see. So first theme, uh, we are called to discernment. Second theme, we are called to engage. And theme number three, we're going back to basics here. We are all called to generosity, Um, Generosity is, it's a readiness to give more of something, as in time or money, than is strictly necessary or expected. It is showing kindness toward others. That's how it's defined. You're called to that, church. Okay, buckle up for just a moment. I'm going to take about a minute, maybe two, and I'm going to rapid fire at you right now with uh, some scripture, okay? Don't feel like you got to follow me. Unless you're competitive and like, I got this. Like, don't worry about it. Um, I'm going to put them on the screen, but I want you to see something here. Okay? Jesus says in Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. Prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, um, when did that happen? When did we see you hungry and feed you? we thirsty and give you a drink. And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? When did that happen? And the king will answer, truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus here is calling his people, his followers to care for and love one another, to be generous and kind, with our brothers and sisters, especially those who are vulnerable and in need. And wouldn't you know that that kind of generosity became the mark of the early church. Acts 2. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their stuff, distributing it to all, as many as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their home and receiving their food, with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What Jesus said in Matthew was now a defining mark of the church in Acts. And my goodness, did it ever become a predominant theme in the entire New Testament. Here we go. Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Ooh, James 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 1 John three seventeen. but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Ooh. Romans 12, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I got I could have given so more, but I'm being kind. One more, this just shows you, it's not about just going through the motions, obligation, but this comes from the heart, love and action. First Corinthians 13, three says, if I give all I have, deliver up my, my body, even giving my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. So what he's saying, it just cuts to the heart. It's a heart of love and generosity. I could give more, but the point here is this. God has called you first and foremost to himself through Jesus Christ. First and foremost. And in Christ, you, brother, you, sister, are called to be generous. He has called you to love one another, to care for one another as Christ loved and cared for you this church is not a side point. Um, This is not a sub point or some like side note in the New Testament. No, 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 no. This is repeated all throughout scripture. Parents, uh, actually teachers. Teachers, raise your hands. How many know if you've ever been a teacher? Man, our teachers are shy. I know you are here. Okay, listen, how many know? What do you do when you want your students to remember something? You repeat it over right okay church this is important because god repeats it over and over and over and over again he's calling you calling me to be generous with each other to see each other and listen generosity is not always money sometimes it is but so many times it's not Uh, do you have a generous heart with the resources that god has placed into your hands can be your time, for example. Um, my goodness, we are busy. In so many ways, time is our most valuable asset. Let me ask, are you generous? Generosity can be serving. It can be giving someone a drive. It can be letting someone into your life. It can be so many things. But church, generosity is not optional. That's what I'm getting at. For those who have been saved by grace through faith, those who have been transformed by the gospel, generosity is not optional. It's an overflow. It is an outcome of the gospel in our lives. We are generous with others as Christ has been generous to you. We love and care for those in need because we were dead in our sins and God demonstrated his love and care for us when we were in the greatest need through sending Jesus. The gospel propels our generosity, compels us to see our brother and sister and to care for them. And, and, and because of that, what I am calling us to, what this text is calling us to is a little bit of premeditated and discerning gospel-driven generosity. It's a mouthful, but premeditated discerning gospel-driven generosity. That's what God is calling you to through his word. And it starts with us as people and as families, that we would care for those who are in need with wisdom and discernment because of the work of Jesus in our lives. Um, Okay, uh, let's get a little uncomfortable for just a moment. Um, You might've heard what I just said right there. And if you were being honest, you might've just been like, (laughs) nah, nah. Like this whole generosity thing. There are people who are like naturally generous, and I'm not one of them. It's not really my thing. Um, This whole generosity thing. It's not really for me. I'm just not that generous by nature. Maybe you would hear you're you're hearing say, "Yeah, I am a Christian. Yes, Um, but I'm just generosity. It's not my thing." And um, or maybe you would say, "It's just not my thing right now. I'm going through a lot. I got a lot on my plate, right." And so maybe you're hearing all that I just said about it not being an option and you're getting a little agitated with me, saying, what are you saying? Like, how dare you? You wouldn't say that to me, but maybe you would. How dare you say that I'm not a Christian if I'm not generous? Is that what you're saying, Pastor? Um, Listen to me. No, I am not saying that you are not a Christian. Why? Because it's not my job to say that. That's God's job. And I am so grateful that that is not my decision to make. But what I can tell you, and and I want you to hear me. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but what I am saying, and what I am encouraging you, compelling you to do, is to look to Jesus and to confess your sin and to repent. I'm telling you to go to him and plead for his grace and mercy in your life, to bring your sin and your selfishness because he's faithful and just to forgive. And when we experience his grace and mercy in our life that we didn't deserve, walk in that forgiveness, we're then able to see others. As you experience the generosity of God through Jesus forgiving you and cleansing you, allow him to change your heart from the inside out. You see others the way he sees them and care for them the way he loves them. It's meant to flow from the inside out. That's gospel-driven generosity. And that's our call, that we would be discerning, that we would all engage, and that we would be generous. And I want to finish with a true story um, this morning. Um, This is back in 2009. Uh, There was a group of ministry leaders and pastors who got together. Um, They were in uh, Colorado in the Denver area. And they got together and, and they were able to meet with the city mayor. And uh, the goal for the meeting was a simple question. The, the question was How can we as churches best work together to serve our city? That's the question. How, that's a great question. Um, and it's a question that I would love to know the answer to here in, in San Antonio. Like, how can we best serve the city? And so they, the, the pastors were seeing the needs in the community. The problem's and the hurt, and they wanted to step in. It's awesome. Awesome, right? So the meeting happens, and as the meeting starts, the floodgates open, and we're dealing with all of these issues coming up. We got at-risk kids. We got dilapidated housing. We have child hunger, drugs, alcohol, abuse, loneliness, elder people who are shut-ins with no one to look out for them. It was just issue after issue after issue coming out. overwhelming, really, because how on earth is a church possibly going to fix all that? And it was in this awkwardness where the pastors were like, well, we just bit off more than we can chew, um, where the mayor said something incredibly profound. It was like the majority of the issues that our community is facing, like they would all be eliminated, all be drastically reduced. And what do you think he said? Was it if the church would give more? Was it if the church would do more programs? Was it if the church would welcome more people in? Like, was that the answer that the mayor gave to these pastors? No. The mayor said something incredibly profound. He said, simply, the majority of issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors, so incredibly profound and so incredibly simple. The answer, in other words, was not some top-down, let's just show up and fix everything. It wasn't the answer. It was this ground-up answer that starts with each one of us. Brother caring for brother, sister for sister, family for family, neighbor for neighbor. So yes, church, we will continue to have these. Benevolence policies are great. We will continue. We're going to continue to try to come alongside of those who are hurting. Yes and amen. But the foundational part to this is you. It's me. It's your family and it's mine. And it sounds so simple and in many ways it is. But as Paul sums it up in Galatians 5, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word or saying. And what is that? You should love your neighbor as yourself simple. Church, that's our call. Your call is to be discerning and engaged and generous. Our call as a church is to be discerning, engaged, and generous, that we would bring glory to God. And as verse four says, that this would all be pleasing to him. Amen.